in Ukraine, what we saw was, you know, basically hackers <laughs> sitting next to the warfighter in the trenches and within a week or two coming up with algorithms that were super helpful um, to the warfighter. And um, for us right now in the DOD, if you handed me a system that was ready to go with all the bureaucracy and all of the testing and, and all of the other pieces of it, it would probably take me well over a year to field that technology, maybe even two years. AI in war, what impact will the new technology have and how can defense departments get comfortable with implementing it? We're gonna be talking about AI assurance today uh, with Jane Pinellas. She was the chief of AI assurance at the chief digital and artificial intelligence office within the Pentagon and is now two months into her job as the chief AI engineer at the Applied Information Science Prance at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, which is a UARC. We'll explain what that is later in the show. Um, Co-hosting with me today is Carson Elmgren, like the tree, who is a researcher at CSET. Welcome to China Talk, you two. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What is AI Assurance, Jane? So AI Assurance is the process behind building evidence and arguments that our systems are trustworthy. So if you think of a trustworthy system, a system that does what it's supposed to when used correctly, doesn't do what it's not supposed to do when used correctly, and humans have been trained to use it correctly, AI assurance is the body of arguments and evidence that helps you build that argument. And what does that mean uh, practically? Practically, uh, that means that we collect evidence through testing and evaluation, for instance, or arguments, whether it be through analyzing contracting language or mathematical proofs of our systems work. It means that we've accounted for uh, our various stakeholders, like the warfighter, the acquisition official, the American tax there, that we're able to, uh, to provide the relevant arguments and evidence to those stakeholders. What do you see as fundamentally new about AI in the military context from the perspective of assurance? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting new things. And, so, and at the same time, there are a lot of things that are really not new, right? So traditionally in the DOD, what we do is not assurance. Traditionally, what we do is test and evaluation on the DOD. And when we do test and evaluation on the DOD, it's done in a fairly linear way because we're used to producing predominantly hardware systems. Obviously, recently, there's been a lot more emphasis on software intensive systems. Um, and the way we're used to testing systems is uh, first developmentally or testing their components and then performing kind of a final operational uh, test at the end where we test the system for mission accomplishment in a realistic operational context. And obviously with an, a new emphasis on, relatively new emphasis, I should say, on software and a new emphasis on AI, we're uh, moving into much more an agile type of approach to development and acquisition and testing so it's becoming a lot more iterative. Uh, we're doing a lot more fielding to learn, kind of uh, getting testers involved a lot earlier in the process, um, which is not traditional for, for the DOD acquisition process. What's different about AI insurance um, is, is a couple of things. One, we actually acknowledge the existence of multiple stakeholders in that assurance process, right? So traditionally, when we do a test, we write a report um, and it goes to the director of operational test evaluation, goes to Congress. We don't really acknowledge all the different stakeholders who need to understand that type of information. AI assurance explicitly sp spells out that there are different stakeholders like the warfighter and the type of assurance that a warfighter might need, for instance, maybe about the predictability uh, of their system or the trustworthiness of their system. 
We have people like our international allies who might want to make sure that our system is interoperable with whatever it is that they're working on, might want to make sure that there are no unintentional consequences uh, to these systems, et cetera. We have our own um, policy and acquisitions officials uh, who care about our compliance with things like our own responsible AI principles, uh, fairness of contracts and things like that. So there's a lot more acknowledgement now of the existence of these different stakeholders and the necessity of building and tailoring these specific AI assurance arguments to those stakeholders. We also have you know, this kind of additional focus on ethics uh, specifically, no, I, I don't. I'm careful not to call it new because we have always operated by uh, the laws of armed conflict, the U.S. Constitution, etc. But now that we are evaluating the possibility of delegating some decisions traditionally made by humans to machines, there's an additional responsibility that we have to adhere. Uh, what makes it different, specifically in the military context, compared, say, to the industry? Well, first and foremost, right, we have this gravity and consequence of decisions that the DOD has to make. Um, we, you know, and, and the easiest thing to compare it to is something like Netflix recommending the wrong movie, right? Obviously, the gravity consequences of that versus, you know, if I have uh, an expert system that recommends firing a missile are considerably different. Um, so we make these super consequential decisions, not always, right, but sometimes. And so the level of testing, the level of assurance that we have to create it's just spectacular. And at the same time, these decisions are incredibly complex, right? Military decisions, especially consequential military decisions, are never made in isolation. They're all of these stakeholders, all of these people contributing to those decisions, anybody from you know the operator who gets to press the button to the lawyer that's making the recommendation that it's okay to press that button um, to the commander that, that thinks it's gonna benefit the operation are all of these complex and hierarchical decisions. And so it's not like you're just assuring a technology that, you know, that somebody will press a button and it will it will go and that's it. You're assuring the entire process. So let's take a step back for a second. This idea of assurance, basically tests and evaluation. Maybe people know it from the movie Pentagon Wars. The so. idea for, you know, decades was like, OK, you're buying this thing. You want to make sure that it works, that it blows up the thing you want it to blow up or that it, you know, stops from getting blow up when you're paying for, you know, a, a body armor or whatever it is. And, you know, that is like fundamentally a straightforward physics problem um, where like this thing is doing what it is, you know, you paid for doing or not doing what you paid for. But when you're starting, you're talking about software and systems and, and sort of getting into putting having algorithms being into your OODA loops and, and whatnot, like exactly what it is you need to test for the sort of, you know, parameters of what is and is it acceptable? Like, it's not just like, okay, it can, you know, blow up 70 to 90% of like whatever the target is downrange. It's like, uh, like the, the sort of um, uh, unknowns that I think uh, the rest of the world has gotten very comfortable uh, with, or has at least an understanding of when, you know, playing with chat GPT and you give it a prompt and a new thing comes out every time, even if you give it the same prompt, like that applied to a military context is, um, you know, uh, a lot of headaches, I imagine, um, but also a lot of, a, a lot of opportunity. So maybe I think we could go from here, just a bit of a sort of institutional question of like how um you know as businesses um across the economy are trying to sort of like wrap their head around the promise and um uh 
and and sort of dangers that uh, uh, AI can potentially pose to their um, to their businesses. Like what what has been the sort of bureaucratic response to all of these new capabilities, which are sort of awesome, but also, you know, have these 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 pretty, um, you know, straightforward uh, downsides if uh, the, the algorithms are able to run awry. Yeah, so when it comes to our commercial industry, there really isn't much regulation uh, going on, right? Um, and that's why you see, for instance, in the early, very early days of ChatGPT, you could ask it, how do I make my car into a mom? And it would give you straightforward directions for, for how to proceed. Since, you know, it's, its initial kind of release, there have been a lot more guardrails built in. Um, but with careful prompt engineering, um, you could probably get an answer still to that question and to many others if you if you really wanted to. Uh, thankfully, even the answers to those questions lack AI assurance, so they may or may not be correct. But um, there's really not not a ton of regulation, um, largely because it's it's hard to regulate these systems, right? They evolve extraordinarily fast, and largely because we don't necessarily want to stifle innovation. Um, and and DoD, in fact, is relying on that innovation coming from the industry to be competitive in the space. Now, of course, at the same time, when it comes to the DOD specifically and their highly consequential systems, there's a fair amount of regulations in the DOD. As you know, for instance, uh, 3000.09 um, and any kind of a, uh, autonomous or AI-enabled um, weapon system specifically, um, there's a lot of regulation that we've been thinking about for many years uh, for the kind of rigor that would go into testing and producing such a system. Yeah, so... So to, to for, for listeners who aren't familiar, the uh, Department of Defense recently released an update to a directive 3000.09, which is on, uh, it's essentially guidance on autonomy and weapon systems that kind of lays out how the department uh, will govern, you know, uh, uh, systems with, with some kind of autonomous components. I, I think a lot of the, uh, the kind of... Uh, response to the update was, you know, not a, not a terrible amount has, has changed. It was kind of mo mostly continuity. Um, and it seems to be uh, the, the the updates that were made seem to be mostly kind of, um, you know, the DOD uh, positioning itself more to to be able to uh, to adopt more AI um, and use use more AI more, more broadly. Um, and I'm curious if you if you agree with that characterization or if there, there's other kind of important things that you think uh, are that people that the public conversation has kind of missed about the update to that document? Yeah, so I don't know if I've really characterized that we're positioning ourselves to be able to use more AI through that directive specifically. I mean, I think generally DoD certainly is positioning itself in, in such a way. Um, and, and if you read the NSCAI report, it becomes very clear why we would do so. Um, I think this, this well, a there was a legal requirement, right, to reissue the directive. Directives have to be looked at every ten years. So let's start with that. There was a legal requirement to look at it again. Um, having said that, uh, you're you're right. The updates are not massive. Um, I actually don't think it's a bad thing. I think it, it, it's a tribute to how well that document was written the first time because we've been looking at it and, and um, figuring out how to change it uh, for some time. Um, and there were some changes that occurred because the technology has changed. The DOD has changed. Um, so it's appropriate to update it, and it's it's pretty awesome, I think, that it, the updates were not massive. But there were certainly some clarifications. Um, it remains um, not a prohibitive document, right, which is important. There's no prohibition of any specific type of a, of a weapon system uh, systems. It gives some really important guidance, I think. That's the, the first one uh, missed that. 
um, and, and this one caught it, uh, on systems which were not autonomous previously, but now we're building um, uh, additional capabilities to those systems that would make them autonomous or semi-autonomous. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it is remarkable that, you know, uh, despite essentially the entire deep learning revolution having happened since, since the last version of this document, uh, there was only kind of relatively minor changes needed. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, how you think we are in terms of uh, capabilities technically for the various things that uh, 3009 requires. In particular, I think that uh, one of the uh, provisions about systems kind of operating according to designers or operators intent. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I think that's that especially with kind of deep learning systems, that's that's an unsolved problem, as well as a uh, uh, that the software be transparent to and explainable by relevant personnel, which again is especially with with deep learning systems um, is a is a major challenge. I'm curious how you how you think we are with the technical state of the art to to implement some of these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look certainly at the DARPA, for instance, explainable AI program, right? I mean, that was a very large program, um, financially intensive, time-wise and effort-wise, very intensive. Um, and in the end of it, it sort of came to the conclusion that yes, explanations with AI would be really helpful for trustworthiness. There are other things that help trustworthiness as well, but true explainable AI is actually really hard, right? And in particular, we don't even know how to evaluate the quality of explanations very well, like what makes a good explanation. So um, so I think, you know, we're still fairly far out for what I would call explainable. Um, I would say transparent is neither necessary nor sufficient, <laughs> um, in my opinion, in the sense that you know, a warfighter at the edge, they don't have time to to look at every at every piece of, of, of their software and they don't need to. They need to know perhaps that somebody else has evaluated it and, and that it's trustworthy. They may need some experience with the system to know that it's trustworthy. Um, but I, I, I would not say that transparency is particularly important. Some explainability and some transparency is probably warranted, especially when we talk about systems that make decisions like at, at the edge of what they're trained on perhaps or um, if they make mistakes, that becomes more important. But generally for operation and for trustworthiness, I don't think those things need to be fully there. I like the wording that we use in the um, responsible AI principles, uh, the idea not of transparency, but traceability, right? So things need to be properly documented. That information needs to exist somewhere and it needs to be accessible to the relevant personnel, as it says here. And I think that's kind of uh, the spirit of that phrase here. I don't think it's full transparency. I don't think it's full explainability. We don't even really know what that means yet. I think it, it, it it's the spirit of kind of traceability, the way we talk about it with ethical AI. And so, so this, I think we're getting to suitable in that sense. So th this kind of comes to a, a broader question. The idea that like you kind of have to do a trust fall into these technologies at least to a certain extent, if you're going to want to, you know, be at at or near the the cutting edge of what's of what's capable. I'm curious, you know, Jane. Again, maybe maybe the answer is more from like a bureaucratic psychology perspective of like what is and isn't okay, and particularly as you know what the foundational models in the private sector. Um, are capable of continues to advance rapidly, you know, whether the sort of 
Overton window of what the DOD is comfortable with from a, um, uh, you know, from the perspective of being cool with these models, which we don't really understand. Um, does that have the potential to sort of change over time in the way in which um, maybe over the past decade, the kind of promise of what um, of what these models could bring to the table wasn't necessarily enough to really um, to really wake folks up and shake up institutional uh, institutional structures. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, I don't really think these, some of these recent developments are shaking things up uh, very nicely. But what I will say is that you know, what I, what I and, and, you know, just to be clear, I really don't speak for the DOD, but in, in Jane's Utopia, where I do, I would say that um, we really, um, the, the DOD, it's really hard to say the DOD will always be okay with this or will never be okay with that, right? Yeah. Uh, it's all very situationally dependent. And thankfully, I'm not the one who ever has to make that decision because that seems really hard. But what I can tell you is, what AI assurance can do for you is quantify those risks and qualify those risks to the best of our ability, right? And then everything else is going to depend on context and on the situation and on the operation. So in a given situation, I could say, hey, this technology you know, is, is risky here, here, and here, and it works really well here, here, and there. And then here's a place where I really haven't tested it yet. And what I can do is create that risk space. And then I bring that to somebody in uniform who actually understands the operation and the context and what the adversary is capable of. And that person then makes an educated risk assessment of what technology can do for them and whether it should be used or not, right? Which, which is also what 3000.09 is about, which is what our responsible AI principles are about. It's just about responsible use of technology. It's not about there's a threshold and if you are better than 80% at something, then everybody can press that button. In some situations, 80% is not good enough. In some situations, even 99% is not good enough. So it's it's not really our job to make those decisions. Our job is to qualify, quantify the risks involved, and then so, somebody with a broader context of the situation um, and, and much better understanding of military operations than I will ever have can make that decision. Does that make sense? I know it's a little bit of a cop out and, and it's not. Yeah. So uh, maybe to c come out in another direction, the sort of the introduction of, uh, I don't know, AI, I think has had a, a sort of rocky bureaucratic history within the Pentagon from, um, you know, the Jake to now uh, CDA, CDAO, CDAO, where you were recently at. Um, what is the hardest part of integrating new, exciting software um, and particularly AI capabilities that you've seen um, from, I don't know, the defense world writ large? I think it's, I think it's actually, it's largely, it's a cultural and it's a cultural change and it's an infrastructural change. That's been the hardest for us um, in the sense that you're right. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily qualify it as a trust fall exactly, but I would say a willingness to take more risk <laughs> is required. Um, certainly, and people are reluctant to do that. Um, and then at the same time, um, what, 
you know, we're we're building these new shiny models and we're bolting them onto old technologies that we're not meant to interact with them. And we're just seeing a lot of these limits, almost artificial limitations uh, to utilization of this technology. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's interesting because, you know, there, there were different eras in American history where I think the sort of, um, you know, the, the tolerance for things not working uh, was a lot higher when it came to defense uh, acquisition. Yeah, and that's exactly why I'm kind of bringing up the, the context and the military decision maker, right? Uh, I mean, if, if you are in peacetime and you have a system that's 75% good, maybe you say, hey, that's not good enough. I, I as a human can do better, which by the way, we do not routinely evaluate how good humans are at their jobs. But let's say you decide I as a human <laughs> can do better um, and therefore... Um, I, I'm just not going to worry about about it, about using the machine for this, right? I'll just do it myself. But if you're being shot at as you were making that decision, maybe 75%, you know, accuracy becomes good enough for you. So it's really all about context and the particular operation at hand. And that's why it's hard to make overarching statements of like, you know, which technology will, will never be used or always be used or how good is good enough. Carson, Jane, let's stay on that for a second. What's this? Um, uh, what's this dream AI-driven, you know, human performance evaluation system that you're <laughs> you're hoping to set up? Well, I, I do have a dream about that. So, when we talk about, if you ask anybody, right, why do you want AI to to solve your problem, or what, or what do you need AI to do? The answer that we frequently get is make better decisions faster. That's been like the the constant answer that I hear. And better than whom and faster than what is always my question, right? So I'm a statistician by training. I need a baseline against which I'm measuring. And the baseline often is humans. We're talking about replacing humans, not replacing, but augmenting humans, or potentially in some cases replacing them so that they can do more complicated things, for instance, right? So um, we do not routinely evaluate how good humans are at their job. The number of times that Jane Pinellas has been able to walk into a military command, you know, and say, I would like to assess your humans is zero. Um, and so when we're talking about, quote unquote, human level performance, um, you know, or, or the machine being better or, or worse or even the same, um, you know, that evaluation has almost never occurred. Something similar finally had, have, has recently been done on um, Project Maven, I believe, long past my departure. Um, but they finally started getting at that a little bit to actually understand what is human level performance. And by the way, yeah. Uh, we, we tend to have much higher expectations of machines than humans, right? Like when, when a Tesla crashes, it's this huge uh, you know, a new story, right? But humans get into car crashes all the time. Um, human, humans make all kinds of mistakes. Um, and uh, warfighters make mistakes too, uh, sometimes very egregious ones. Um, but machine-made mistakes tend to be penalized a lot more. Also, human performance is really variable. We don't talk about that enough, right? But if, if I didn't get a lot of sleep last night because I got into a fight with my spouse or something, maybe my performance is all over the place today. Maybe on average, the machine does worse, but maybe its performance is really consistent and that's okay. So, um, and, and Jane's you know, AI utopia, we're consistently measuring um, how, how good people and machines are at their jobs and making good choices as far as who can do that job better. And that would also involve an evaluation of, you know, if you augment a human now, what does the human do with all that free time? Um, you know, you've changed that human's workflow fundamentally. How does that hopefully improve the entire system that the human and the machine are now part of? We don't really routinely do that either. The machines are not only going to be taking our jobs, they're also going to be telling us how bad at our jobs we currently are. <laughs> so, so much better. 
coming coming off the idea of just like you want you want ai to take more jobs like where aside from like right you know talk we, we, most of the, most of this conversation we talked about sort of the warfighter but there's you know many millions of people who work in the pentagon who don't carry a gun um what other what particular corners of the you know broader uh defense department are you most excited to have ai augment or replace uh you know people's workflows yeah no that that's a great question i really appreciate this point because when you talk about dod and ai people jump to kill robots like really quickly right and that's actually not a majority uh of the things that we do uh but we we have seen some really great applications in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief um especially you know computer vision uh based um, things like hurricane relief and evaluation of, of areas for water damage and things like that. We have seen great applications of um, using AI to draw fire perimeter. Um, so really uh, great applications there. We've also seen um, a lot of success in medical imagery. So anything having to do with warfighter health. Uh, we've, we've seen this for COVID. We've seen this for uh, like retinal scans. Um, uh, and some other medical applications as well. Not so much, by the way, for for suicide prevention, which is an area uh, that we keep looking into because it's obviously a really important area for us to try to improve. Um, and then anything having to do with with logistics, like anything having to do with time to event, if those data are well recorded, um, then we tend to do um, well with those as well. Um, but also keep in mind, you know, there, there are much simpler tasks that we can automate, like depositing checks for people. Um, it, it, you know, that they can really uh, make people's lives a lot better. So, uh, oh, and another one that was really great uh, that I, I don't want to miss it was a project that we had that was natural language processing that enabled you to basically uh, quickly go through and summarize um, various policies in the DOD. As you know, we are a heavily bureaucratic organization, so having an LP um, help you. Uh, analyze policy, especially as you were coming up with something new um, and to figure out what's relevant and then how everything would interact is really helpful as well. Uh, there's there's some, um, uh, you know, one one vision, which actually uh, Palantir released a, a demo video about this kind of a system of, of this kind that uh, helps you know, integrate a bunch of information uh, from different types of sensors, different platforms, mm -hmm. um, you know, forming a kind of a brain in the joint all domain command and control I guess, network in some sense. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a, a demo video. I'm not sure how, how mature it is, but uh, I'm curious how you think about those kinds of, that that kind of vision and and especially how to kind of test and evaluate and and assure that kind of system that's so integrated uh, and, and so complex. Um, so for the edit initiative, uh, the uh, JADC2 or Joint All Domain Command and Control, the idea that you can fuse information from multiple places, multiple sensors into, you know, what we call intelligence. Um, and it gets super complicated, uh, both to fuse, but then also to analyze and also to assure. Uh, we have seen some successes of it uh, already um, at CDAO, specifically with J2APL actually on a project called Smart Sensor, um, but also uh, with ARLIS, that's the University of Maryland uh, UARC that we work with routinely. Um, and there are some, some other s small successes as well uh, as we kind of build these highly complex systems. And I can tell you that the only 
uh, reason why we're able to do it at all is because those teams integrate testers from the very, very, very beginning. And so as soon as they even start building their um, system engineering plans, they start defining even what success might mean or what you might measure. Testers are already involved, thank you through that assurance case and thinking about how errors are going to propagate from the beginning to the very end. And if you don't do that, it, it will so quickly become so complex that you will never be able to diagnose or localize issues. And it becomes harder, of course, if you have multiple teams playing and integrating different parts of software and hardware. It becomes very difficult very quickly. So it's really imperative to have testers or assurance experts there from the very beginning, from design stage. Back in 2020, the Institute for Defense Analyses published a report uh, surveying the field of testing, evaluation, val uh, validation, and verification for AI. And they pointed out six kind of challenges uh, for TEBV for AI at that time. Um, and these were, uh, for one thing, complexity, the complexity of, of the systems and of the, the tasks they're doing, uh, novel safety and security issues, things like adversary examples um, and problems cascading through systems, uh, problems with the acquisition system, which which you've all already discussed some, uh, technical gaps in things like methods, tools, uh, governance gaps in things like policies, standards, metrics, and then also issues with human-machine teaming and the complexity of having uh, humans integrated into these systems. Um, I'm curious where you see we, we currently are with these these different challenges, which we've made progress on, which are still kind of open open challenges. Sure, yeah. And I think we've talked some about the complexity of the system, so I'll skip that. Um, the problems with the acquisition system, I mean, they, they still kind of exist. Again, the traditional acquisition system is, is super linear, but the Jake actually, this is the predecessor to CDAO, made some pretty big strides uh, that CDAO is sustaining very well. They actually created three different uh, and new contract vehicle uh, trade wins, uh, data readiness, contract vehicle, and the test and evaluation bulk purchase agreement um, that kind of create this easy environment for vendors, big and small, to compete, uh, to be kind of predetermined, to be okay to work with the DOD, et cetera, uh, and a very flexible contracts that we've been able to use and, and many others um, as well. Um, I think probably the biggest strides that we've made has have been on kind of standards and metrics and tools. Um, and in particular, we focused on tools quite a bit because uh, as we came up with the different standards and metrics, we basically realized, well, nobody is going to follow this if we don't make this easy, right? Um, and um, tools and infrastructure in particular are super expensive and super lacking in the DoD uh, for, for test and evaluation of AI. So much so that for the last two years, um, the Jake and subsequently CDAO participated in the issue paper process in the DOD where we say, hey, you know, we know that the budget of the DOD is set, but here's something big that you really missed. And we really um, need some funds to start addressing this. And we kind of told them that, look, if you expect to actually field complex and consequential AI-enabled systems in the next five years, here's a bill for everything we need um, to build the test infrastructure that will accompany this. Um, and so even though we didn't get everything we wanted, which was to be expected, uh, the department did take it seriously and did fund some of those efforts. And so now uh, CDAO, in partnership with TRMC, the Test Resource Management Center, which is part of research and engineering that gets funded by Congress every year to build and maintain the department's test infrastructure. CDAO partnering with TRMC 
are now working very actively to build up infrastructure for testing AI-enabled systems and transitioning and development of, of test tools. And so there are some tools that are being transitioned from DARPA, some tools that already exist in the government that are just being hardened and kind of proliferated, and then um, new tools uh, and infrastructure that are being built, including things like capability to collect data uh, at the edge or at the test site, uh, things that increase computational performance and evaluate and increase model performance, um, uh, tools to measure and improve robustness of models and things like that. So I, I think huge strides have been made there. The department is really starting to recognize that in order to field the systems, we need some kind of assurance that they actually work. And that assurance means that we need to build the, the relevant infrastructure. Um, and then as far as like the standards and metrics, um, you're probably aware NIST recently came up with a risk management framework uh, for AI. We were an active participant uh, with them as they were writing it. Um, CDAO uh, has a number of frameworks that they've put out on how AI should be tested and evaluated. And these are living documents as technology improves. Uh, we reissue those documents. And so um, I believe this summer we, sh we should be expecting CDAO to issue a new iteration of those documents. Um, and then uh, I expect that soon DOT and the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation will come up with some guidance as well jointly uh, with CDAO. So I think, oh, and then of course we have our um, Responsible AI Strategy and Implementation Plan that also places you know, very specific responsibilities on different organizations for this. So I think in the metrics space and the measurement and the tooling space is where we've made a lot of progress. The HSI, the human system integration area, that worries me a lot because I think that that's a very fair uh, observation. Frankly, it's something that IDA has been observing for a while, even before AI systems or uh, the department is kind of woefully understaffed when it comes to human factors um, uh, workforce. Um, and so I think probably a lot to be done there still. We have the frameworks, um, thanks to CDAO, um, who are actually helped by some of these IDA uh, contributors. Um, but the, the people piece is still tough to get around. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as, as maybe kind of a follow-up on that, um, uh, what you see as kind of some of the biggest open technical problems. Like if, if a PhD student in, you know, AI assurance was interested in, in working on on topics that are kind of relevant for for this kind of thing, um, would you direct them towards the uh, the human computer interaction type side of the of the field to to make some progress over over there, or what would be your? Certainly, I think um, human factors is a is a great great place to uh, to get some more bodies um, that the DoD desperately needs. I think in terms of research areas, just a couple of things that bother me especially. One is runtime monitoring, right? So now you've deployed a system, what happens next? And, um, you know, again, traditional systems, you, you test a tank, you deploy a tank, you're mostly done with the tank, you don't worry about it. Now there's this extra big sustainment tail where this is a system that becomes obsolete the second you've deployed it. So it probably is going to need some kind of frequent updating. Um, it may, you know, there may be domain shift, data drift, adversarial actions towards that system, just new data that you want to incorporate into it. Um, and figuring out how all of that will work, right, including the logistics of it, like if, uh, you know, Corporal Caro uh, is, a, is at the edge and, and sees that the model is not performing well, does Corporal Carl get the authority to retrain the model? Does he have to send it back somewhere to be retrained? Figuring out, you know, 
who makes those decisions, how the actual pipeline works and what are the thresholds, uh, I think is really important. And then another thing that I'm still kind of, uh, that really bothers me that we have not resolved is, is the thresholding issues. Like we don't actually understand how good our AI has to be in order to be deployable. And understandably, you know, we talked about how it's all in context and depending on the operation, but even just for trustworthiness, for the human to, to rely on the system, uh, you know, what really helps build it and, and just how much of it uh, do, do we want to pursue necessarily? Uh, I, and how do those errors propagate from, you know, a model kind of uncertainty, a model mistake to a no kidding, like mission operational impact? Um, so those are some of the things that I'd like to know. And that's what that's what keeps me excited about coming to work. Um, I want to come back to this culture question because I'm glad it keeps you excited, Jane, but... I'm sure there are many people that just want to do airland battle and like, you know, think it's the 1980s and that this sort of level, like the, the types of new challenges and thinking from a sort of organizational bureaucratic, whatever perspective are really enormous and like very mind stretching um, for an institution that's not, you know, for the past few decades, hasn't necessarily had to do that type of thing. Um, I don't know, what are the sort of like push and pull factors from a cultural perspective that you see playing out? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's I think it's clear where your where your enthusiasm comes. But for like, you know, the the, <laughs> the sort of the person or the bureaucracy on the fence that kind of needs to be bought into this type of stuff in order for it to actually be be rolled out in a transformative way. Like, what are the. What are the sort of forces acting on those uh, on those folks? Um, well, I think we're very fortunate to have the support of the DoD at like very high levels, right? Like the Deputy Secretary, who is uh, who CEO reports to, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Hicks. Dr. Hicks uh, is extremely interested in JADC two. Dr. Hicks is extremely interested um, and focused on responsible AI implementation. So we're very lucky uh, that right now those things are um, of utmost importance. And it does not always work that way, right? And when the leadership is not paying that kind of attention uh, like they are right now, these things, you know, testing uh, is not the thing that let people, you know, wake up to in the morning, except me and like five of my friends. Uh, so. Uh, but right now, we're fortunate to have that kind of leadership from the DOD that actually does really care about these things. And uh, we also know that our adversaries don't necessarily feel that way, or at least didn't until recently, and I can get into that um, if you like. Um, and so we know that these systems, in order to be effective, need to be robust, basically, right? So, And, and everybody is painfully aware of that because the breadthness of AI is very apparent. Uh, its data dependency is very apparent. Uh, you know, all of these toy adversarial examples where a stop sign gets changed into a yield sign or a speed limit sign, everybody knows about those. Um, and so um, building trustworthy technology uh, has recently become, you know, a, a topic of discussion that a lot of people care about. So it's kind of a good time uh, to be in the space. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about China for a second. What's, what do you, what, what's your take on their general approach to, you know, AI systems and the PLA? Well, um, by re not even a little bit, the China expert. <laughs> Let me start with that. Um, so I, I really will not 
uh, pretend to be any, anything I'm not here. But for the longest time, the question that we were asked was, well, China doesn't care. China's going to field faster because China's not going to spend that kind of time or money on test and evaluation or assurance. And does that put us at a disadvantage? Right. That's the question that we get a lot. You know, if our adversaries don't care about responsible land, we do is that disadvantageous. And the answer that we kind of converged on is, you know, probably it's probably not disadvantageous. And the reason that we can actually use responsible AI and test and evaluation and assurance as an asymmetric advantage is that it produces more robust systems, right? In the end of the day, if you get involved early, if you test the system early, you're actually giving yourself time to fix things. I mean, nobody likes, you know, likes it when you find a problem uh, with their system, but when you do um, and you fix it, your system becomes better. So people who don't do that don't get better systems. But actually just a few weeks ago, um, I, CSET actually issued a translation of a Chinese document um, that talks about their approach to test and evaluation and how much they care about test and evaluation. And it's not dissimilar from our own. So I guess, you know, I, I was so happy that we finally have an answer to this question, uh, but I'm not sure the question's valid anymore. It looks like our adversaries also care about evaluating their models and their algorithms for robustness, about figuring out how to evaluate them in situ, figuring out when to stop um, deploying models, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and then on top of that, you know, you have this this other community of um, of folks who are not not at all like mathematicians like us who work on things like confidence building measures, right? So a much like kind of broader category of actions. Um, there's a great paper on this by Paul Shariot and Michael Horowitz uh, that describe more of like a diplomatic approach to this, right? So things like um, information sharing. Uh, track two dialogues, inspections, um, and, and kind of more diplomatic uh, approaches to interacting with other nations like China, like Russia, um, on, on these very complex issues. So, you know, the idea of respon being responsible in AI is a, is a very interesting one, because on the one hand, yes, we don't want artificial intelligence starting you know, World War III and, 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 and nuking everyone left and right. But you, you were talking earlier about this idea of like, you know, we trust human drivers more than we trust a Tesla autopilot, even though if every human driver was transformed into a Tesla autopilot tomorrow, like it would um, be, uh, you, you know, we, we would have fewer accidents on the, on the street. And I think the idea- oh, I did not claim this just to be very clear. <laughs> Okay, as a, as a hypothetical. Yes. And I think there, there's an interesting sort of, it's like the, the, the narrative that America had about China and AI almost tells us more about ourselves than it does about China, right? And that like we, th that like America thinks they're the sort of responsible actor by like rolling this out slowly um, or, or rolling this out sort of slowly and carefully. But I, I guess, Jane, what type of errors do you think the U.S. government is more likely to make on the sort of like too slow or too fast side, or is that even the wrong framework to how? Um, yeah, I don't know if that's really the right framework because, yeah, I th it's just a, it's bad either way. Right? <laughs> like deploying technology that's not ready uh, is going to have very serious consequences. It's going to undermine the trust of the American public of the warfighter. It can potentially put our you know, warfighters in danger, it can risk mission failure. 
Uh, on the other hand, holding up a technology due to bureaucracy also has negative consequences and also puts us at a disadvantage on the battlefield uh, if our adversary is more advanced. Um, and so we're also can miss opportunities there. So really it's about finding a balance and then kind of, it's really about optimization, you know, and, and then any, it, it's, you know, uh, the analog in uh, an AI model, right? Do you want more false positives or false negatives? Well, you want to converge on something that's kind of acceptable yeah. to you in terms of both. Um, so I think that's that's just where we are. Any sort of reflections or, or lessons from the war in Ukraine you want to pull with regards to these topics? I can, yeah. Um, one comment that a, a former colleague of mine, Greg Allen, whom I think you also had on this uh, podcast, has made that stung is that in Ukraine, what we saw was, you know, basically hackers <laughs> sitting next to the warfighter in the trenches and within a week or two coming up with algorithms that were super helpful um, to the warfighter. And um, for us right now in the DOD, if you handed me a system that was ready to go with all the bureaucracy and all of the testing and, and all of the other pieces of it, it would probably take me well over a year to feel that technology, maybe even two years. Um, and, and so Greg said this, and I, I, I wish I could have argued with him, but I didn't really have an argument. I mean, we are kind of used to operating in peacetime, and in peacetime, you can afford to be extraordinarily careful uh, with, with taxpayer dollars, with the kind of technology you deploy, with everything, right? As we approach operating and possibly not peacetime, or as we approach at least taking a much more defensive uh, posture, um, it may be that, that those trade-offs between the amount of time um, that you spend verifying something, it may be that those trade-offs change and you have to start evaluating your risk of you know, not deploying something. Uh, that that's really useful to the warfighter. The New York Times a few weeks ago took a photo and wrote an article about like a command center, a Ukrainian command center in some, you know, basement somewhere. And it showed the screen of like all the different, you know, the feeds they were seeing. And you could, you could notice that you saw on the sort of, of the, just the communications technologies you, they were using. There was Skype, there was Teams, there was Discord, there was Zoom. There were like literally seven different platforms that um, they were using to literally run the war. And the idea that, um, you know, these are like commercial software and presumably they've been doing this for a year, right? And for whatever reason, some technologies are more useful in certain conversations and other technologies are more useful than others and like the the sort of the whatever whatever this optimal has like they figured out off the shelf that works for them is using these like seven different commercial platforms and the idea that like the u.s defense department um if like discord turned out to be the thing that works better to you know move boats around an ocean or you know uh, get 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 platoons in the right place or what have you like it's just so far-fetched that that could ever be a thing that would happen in um, in the U.S. Um, but look, this is the thing that the people fighting a war in 2023 have, through like That's incredible right. you know loss of life, discovered is is the is the best solution for them to to fight the war as effectively as they can. And I just thought that was a really remarkable example of of how um, you know how different a, a wartime and a, a peacetime army ends up being. Yeah, absolutely. So we teased it at the top. Jane, what is a UARC and why, and why are they important? 
Uh, UARC is a university affiliated research center. Uh, and it's basic, those are basically strategic uh, DOD research centers that are affiliated with universities. Um, so formerly, uh, they're established by the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Um, and they exist really to ensure that essential engineering and technology capabilities are maintained uh, for the DOD. A lot of similarity between us and federally funded research and development centers, uh, but the difference is that UARCs are allowed to compete for uh, some science and technology work, uh, except when it's specifically prohibited by, by their contracts. And so we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we do predominantly research, development, um, engineering, and kind of prototyping. Um, and we're considered a trusted agent um, of the DOD. Um, that, that is free of, of conflict of interest, basically. Um, the neat thing about J2APL specifically is that we're actually the oldest and the biggest uh, UARC. And we've been around since 1942. Um, our um, kind of elevation to, to UARC status and our strategic importance was really um, started out of our contribution to the proximity fuse during World War II which enabled uh, better targeting of, of enemy airplanes. Um, so uh, I, I believe what, uh, that we're actually bigger than all of the other UARCs uh, combined or something like that. So we've been around for a very long time uh, and we have very special relationships with the DOD, especially with the Department of the Navy, but, to, uh, but we also have um, additional programs uh, that helps support NASA, for instance, if you've seen the latest uh, DART mission um, and programs with the Johns Hopkins Hospital as well um, that have to do with the National Health. I guess more, more broadly, Jane, when it comes to artificial intelligence, like what, what do you think should be happening in-house within the Defense Department? Where, what's the proper role of these FFRDCs and, and, and UARCs and, and supporting artificial intelligence? And, you know, what do you want to leave to the, to the Palantirs and open AIs of the world to develop? Um, that, that's a great question. And I think uh, the way we're doing it now is, is actually roughly right, uh, which is to say development is done largely outside of the DOD. I think that's the right thing to do because I have now seen how difficult it is to hire and retain personnel in the DOD. And I, uh, I, I just don't see how we're ever going to be able to do that um, inside the department. Uh, I think that predominantly the DOD technology should come from the American industry. Uh, they've done um, a great job. There are multiple companies out there, big and small, um, that are in line with the DOD mission. And then UARCs and FFRDCs, we've been playing the role of a trusted partner. Uh, we've been buying down some risk for the government. We sometimes prototype. But it is not our job or our purpose to commercialize, um, and so we don't. Um, and and somebody has to help the government sometimes be that trusted agent to help them decide among the, the many different um, industry options. And that's a great role for an FFRDC and a UARC. Specifically, I know a JHA the test and evaluation is one of our core competencies, and I've seen us come in multiple times in those roles for the DOD, for CDAO, for DARPA, for Jake for Project Maven for other organizations in that role of, of helping the government test and decide which industry partner to go with. Um, and that makes sense to me as a really good structure. I'm not sure to what degree you'll have thoughts on this, but I'm curious, you know, it seems like the DOD is doing a lot of really great work and thinking on, you know, testing and evaluation of systems, making sure 
uh, that kind of risks and benefits are well uh, well balanced. And I'm curious if you think there are any lessons that the broader world, you know, the civilian world, the commercial world can take from that, uh, including, you know, as as Congress um, and policymakers in general uh, start to think about how we should be regulating AI, um, including things like you know, how systems should be tested before they're deployed and just in the economy. Yeah, and what we can learn from industry and what we can uh, bring to the DOD uh, from there. Um, I, I do think, you know, we're making some strides specifically on the AI assurance um, front. I think because we're so concerned with the safety and security of effectiveness of our systems, more so than I would say most of our industry partners, not because they're bad, but just because our systems are more consequential. Um, so I think potentially some of that holistic approach um, can be adapted. Another thing that the DoD does different uh, or differently uh, is that we have independent um, test and evaluation, right? So traditionally in industry, what we see is that testers are kind of parts of, they're, they're part of the development team um, and that all happens iteratively. Whereas in the DoD, because we deal with taxpayer dollars, we have to bring an independent uh, test and evaluation. And so we've seen a lot of value from that. Um, in the DoD, we also, you know, as you know, we can't field to learn the way that uh, in some ways that like, uh, an, uh, you know, Apple can field a new iOS or something and, and people freak out when something doesn't work and they quickly fix it. Again, that's not something something we can do. We have to get it right kind of to begin with most of the time. Um, so, you know, whether those things they can be learned from us, yes. Whether they're necessarily applicable or best approaches for the industry, I'm not sure. There's a reason they do things the way that they do them probably because it's been working for them um, fairly well. I would say that, you know, another thing probably that the DOD does um, reasonably well is concerns surrounding, um, you know, adversarial attacks, cyber attacks, et cetera. Uh, and probably I would say our industry partners need to be exceedingly careful um, to build their systems to be resilient um, in such ways. But other than that, I guess I've never thought of the reverse. I, I've always approached it as what we can learn from them because it's it's the industry that tends to innovate um, industry it tends to, you know, hire new talented uh, grads and then pay them three times as much as we can. Um, so I've mostly been focused uh, on learning from them um, and looking forward to continuing to partner with them. Yeah, I think as AI potentially starts to infiltrate, you know, more very high consequence areas of civilian life also, like, you know, things like critical infrastructure and, and you know, some healthcare uses and whatnot. Um, I would I would hope that we could mm -hmm. do some of that kind of, you know, uh, adequate testing before fielding, um, or we may need, may need to in some other domains also. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Um, Thank you. Jane, we close every show with a song. Do you have a song for us about testing and evaluation? Uh, a song about test and evaluation. You know what? I'm going to pick the song Can't Stop Me Now by Queen. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks so much for being a part of China Song. Thank you.
Supersonic Man.